Well, I know it might be hard for some of you to imagine, but I was not always the athlete that you know me to be. That was a little too, all right, hold on. That, that laugh was like a little too much of a laugh. I was not always the athlete I am today, especially back in grade school. In grade school, as you can probably imagine, I was one of the smallest kids in my class. I didn't really have much in the way of athletic or ability or skill. I didn't play sports outside of school. I didn't really have like a knowledge of basically like any sports that we played in the schoolyard. And so that made recess a bit of a challenge. And at recess, we played most of the typical schoolyard games that you can think of with kickball and, you know, basketball sometimes. But mostly, at least at our recess, mostly it was touch football. Yes. And it always began with picking teams. Usually the most popular kids and the most athletic kids, which were often the same kids, they would usually be the team captains and they would pick all the people that they would want on their teams. You know, they would take, turn, take their turns picking teams. And you can probably see where this is going. And, okay, like I said, I was not the most athletic kid, so I would often get picked last. Or not even like picked last, but like, okay, you're the last person there. I don't even really want to pick you, but since you're standing there, then you have to be on this particular team. And look, there was even like, like there was one other kid that I knew I was maybe like a little bit more athletic than, but he had the coolest football. And everyone wanted to use his football, and he would only let us use his football if he could be one of the captains or if one of the captains would pick him first. And so like, even when there was like one other kid, I'm like, okay, I know I can like edge him out. Still, I always got picked Last, recess meant being confronted with the reality day after day that when it came to schoolyard sports, I had nothing to offer. It can be hard to be a kid in this world, can it? Now imagine for a moment that someone came along and said to me, great. Guess what? You're in luck because you are exactly where everyone should want to be in life. I think we would probably find that a little bit strange. We wouldn't expect that. We would expect someone to come along and say, hey, this is how you can get stronger. This is how you can get faster. This is how you can get better at sports. Or, or we'd expect someone to come along and say, listen, when you grow up, this is not going to matter. Like, nobody cares. Like, no one's going to care about how you did in schoolyard sports. So, like, just go find something else that you're good at. Find something else that you can be better at other people at in life. We would maybe expect something like that. We wouldn't expect someone to simply say, good. This is exactly where you want to be. But that's exactly how Jesus begins the sermon on the Mount. What Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount, last week, if you were here, we did this, this big picture, a large overview of the whole sermon. What Jesus is doing in the whole Sermon on the Mount, he's laying out this like this charter document of what discipleship is, what following Christ looks like in the kingdom of God under his rule 
or reign, which is another way to say what this whole sermon is all about. It's what life in the kingdom looks like. And that is especially clear, like undebatably clear in these Beatitudes, this opening introduction of the Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes that you and I just read aloud together, these same Beatitudes that we've been challenged to commit to memory over the next several weeks. These Beatitudes are the introduction to the whole sermon. They set the tone for the whole Sermon on the Mount, and that's especially true of this very first beatitude. It sets the tone for all other beatitudes. It sets the tone for the whole sermon. And I want to make the case this morning that it ought to set the tone of your entire life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just 13 words in English. Now, look, this is going to be a bit different over these next several weeks, uh, what we do up here. I mean, typically I would try to take many words of a passage and, like, distill those down into, like, one sentence using far fewer words in that sentence to capture what those many words were kind of getting at. This morning, over the next several weeks, it's going to be, like, the opposite of that. We're going to take a few words, and I'm going to use more words than that to try to expand and, like, demonstrate and capture and expound upon what these few words are meaning. So every week you can expect kind of a paraphrase of each one of these beatitudes. And so here is in essence what Jesus is saying in this opening, this opening tone-setting beatitude. What he's saying is something like this. Those who have nothing spiritually are in the most desirable position. Because they're the ones God graciously and gladly gives all things to. Those who have nothing spiritually, who are poor in spirit, who are aware of their own spiritual poverty before God, their their lack of spiritual resources before God, they are in the most desirable, the most to be envied, the most to be celebrated and congratulated position in this life, in this world, because they are precisely the ones that God is saying, I am eager to graciously and gladly give you the kingdom and everything that comes with it. In other words, when God shows up to pick people for his kingdom, it is the very ones who know that based on their own spiritual condition, based on their own merits, just their own like natural merits in themselves, they're the last ones that they would think anyone would pick. And those are precisely the ones who get the kingdom. Which is why I say they are in the most desirable position. And I actually want to unpack that part first. I think this is really important for us to understand what's happening, not just in this beatitude, but but in all the beatitudes. And so as we kind of start kind of re-going back through these beatitudes that we just touched on last week, this is, I think, really important for us to get right out of the gate here. I'm getting that language of sort of desirable position. I'm getting all of that just from the simple language that Jesus is using here in that word, blessed. Friends, the blessed ones 
are in the most desirable position because they're the ones living Jesus' vision for the good life. That's what Jesus is getting at when he's talking about this, this idea of being blessed in its most basic sense. The blessed ones are in the most desirable position because they're the ones that are living out Jesus' vision of the good life. That's actually even what beatitude means. I don't know about you, but I know for the longest time when, like, when I heard the language of beatitudes, I always thought that meant like, here's an attitude that you ought to be. Like, be this attitude, which like, it makes a lot of sense, actually. And there is a sense in which Jesus is absolutely inviting us to have and to live into these attitudes. That's not what beatitude means. Beatitude just comes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed. That's all that it means. Just, just, these are just statements of blessings. You're like, well, how does that actually help me. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is I think most of us tend to think of blessed or being blessed or getting blessings as like, you know, we go through life and we receive these, these various blessings from God as if Jesus is saying, these are the kinds of people that God likes to, to just kind of pour out other blessings on. That's actually not what Jesus is saying. In fact, the word that he's even using here for blessed isn't even the, the most common, most typical word for blessed that comes up in the Bible. It's actually a very specific word that is intended to describe the present state or the present condition of one's life. And even then you might be like, that sounds like a weird distinction and I'm still kind of having a hard time understanding what it really means, what the difference is. So maybe I can illustrate it this way. One of my good friends, Dean Blake, when you walk up to him, often if you, if you greet him and you say hello and you ask, hey, how are you doing? One of the things you will often hear from Dean, he'll say, I'm blessed. Those of you who know him, you know, you know he does that. Like, and he's not trying to be like, you know, like Jesus jukey on you. Like, oh, let me say some kind of like Christianese. So he's genuine. Like he, what he's saying in that moment by saying, I'm blessed. Like it's not a statement of how his day is going. What he's saying is no matter how his day is going, he is living in this recognition that he has many good gifts from God. In fact, all the good things that he has in his life, he's just acknowledging that all of them are blessings and gifts from God. And that's how we typically think of the word blessing. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with thinking of blessings that way. And Dean, there's nothing wrong with giving that kind of a greeting. It's a, it's a good thing to do. But that's not what this word blessed means here. What this word blessed in the Beatitudes means is something more like another one of my friends, how she typically greets people. Some of you also know her. Her name is Karen Wilkerson. Not only does she come to our church, but many of you know her because even going back to before she was part of our church, she worked at the Southside Aldi at the checkout line. Some of you might already know where I'm going. If you ever, for those stretch of years, if you ever went to the Southside Aldi and were in the checkout line, in Karen's checkout line, and you said, how are you doing? Without fail, you always heard the exact same thing. Every time she would say, I'm living the dream. And, and, and she would say it without even a hint or drip of sarcasm, which like with genuine, real enthusiasm. Like, I'm here working at all these, serving people, helping people with groceries. I am living the dream. 
By the way, I asked Karen's permission before I said this this morning. Uh, she has since moved on from Aldi, but she has assured me that she's still living the dream. But that's exactly what Jesus means here when he says blessed. He's saying these ones are the ones who are presently, not like someday will later, but these are the ones who are presently living the dream. To be blessed in the Beatitudes, these are the ones who are experiencing the good life, the ones who are experiencing human flourishing. These are the ones to be congratulated, even, even envied, but not like in a negative, jealous way, to be envied to say like, wow, that they are clearly in the most desirable position. Listen, understanding that, like understanding the distinction between what Jesus means here with this, this blessed language is so important. It makes, it makes these beatitudes so powerful when we realize that this is Jesus inviting us into his vision for living the good life. And part of what makes it so powerful is that what he says it looks like to be living the dream. It isn't anything close to what we would expect. Like even some of the, what, what we would naturally call the good beatitudes, like some of like just the naturally, what we would say the better ones, like, you know, like, oh, hunger and thirsting for righteousness, even though we're often like, yeah, yeah, of course I know what righteousness means. And, you know, that's probably a good thing. It's kind of like religious sounding language. Or when Jesus says, blessed are those who are, who are merciful or blessed are the peacemakers, we can at least acknowledge like, okay, those are positive sounding things that most of us would probably want to have part of our lives. But we still wouldn't characterize them as like the definition of what it means to be living the good life. And especially... We especially wouldn't include these other things that we'd be tempted to see as negatives, like, like mourning. I mean, Jesus is going to say, like, come back next week, blessed are those who mourn. And he's still saying, like, yep, those are the ones who are living the good life. Blessed are the persecuted. And even this one today, this morning, this, this opening kind of be-all, be-attitude, this opening vision of the good life, Jesus is saying, blessed, living the good life, living the dream, are those who are poor in spirit. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Quite simply, the poor in spirit are those who understand. And not only just understand, they understand and even embrace their spiritual poverty before God. Right, like in the, in the most basic sense to be poor is not even just to lack Money. I mean, that is, I guess, the most basic definition. But, but therefore, lacking money, you lack all ability. Like, especially in Jesus' day, if you were poor, most likely you would need to beg for money, for food, and for clothing. You would be completely dependent on the kindness and generosity of others. And that is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying there is a kind of poverty of spirit, a, a spiritual poverty that when it comes to your own spiritual condition, your own, your own personal spiritual ability, what he's saying is you're broke. And look, by spiritual, he doesn't even mean something like, like mystical. He's basically saying that if you were to just take an audit 
of, of the entirety of your person, if you were just to take like an inventory or an audit of your, your character and the, the totality of your thoughts and your, your words and your actions, you would recognize that they do not merit you access and entry into the kingdom. Look, when Jesus is talking like this, in, in one sense... In one sense, it absolutely would have been surprising and shocking for their ears to hear that when God is going to bring his kingdom, his rule and reign from heaven to earth, and when he's looking for those he can bring into the kingdom and to give the kingdom and all that comes with it, he is not looking for the people who are rich spiritually. He's looking for those who are poor spiritually. And yes, that would have been absolutely shocking to hear, but but not totally unprecedented. It's not like Jesus was just saying this completely out of nowhere. In fact, there are all sorts of places all throughout the Old Testament that anticipated this very thing, especially in the book of Isaiah. I want to just give you one example where we see this kind of language where Isaiah says in chapter 57, he says, For thus says the one, this is speaking of God, thus says God, who was high and lifted up, who inhabits Eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who was of a contrite and lowly spirit. I dwell with him to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. For, he says, I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. Why is he talking about being angry? Well, here in the context of Isaiah, what Isaiah is talking about is the nation of Israel having gone into exile. This, this nation that was actually promised the kingdom, promised that God would actually dwell with them, promised that they would receive all the good that would come with that, living with God, coming under God's protection, under his rule and reign and having life and forgiveness and all these kinds of things. And yet they consistently rebelled against God again and again. And God said, my anger is kindled against you because of your sins. And he sends them off into exile. But he says, but I am not always going to be angry. I am going to bring you back in. And I'm going to make sure that I make good on all my kingdom promises. And Jesus shows up. And do you remember what, what Jesus says in the last chapter of Matthew? Before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, he, he begins preaching. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew says that Jesus went around preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. What Jesus is saying is that in his person, as he's showing up, he is now the one who is bringing about the long-awaited-for and promised kingdom of God and all the good things that come with it. And well, what kind of people is Jesus going to pick to be a part of that kingdom? And you can imagine all those listening to Jesus, 
who know in themselves, they know, spiritually speaking, again, left to themselves in their own natural condition, they have nothing, nothing in themselves that would lead, lead Jesus to show up and say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want you, you, and you. Get on my team. Let's go. There's nothing in them. They know that. And so even as you can just imagine them hanging their heads in their poverty of spirit, Jesus reaches down and he lifts up their faces. And he says, guess what? You are exactly who the kingdom belongs to and all that comes with it. All that comes with it. Knowing God, having a relationship with God, experiencing forgiveness of our sins, having the promise of eternal life in the age to come when the kingdom is fully and finally perfected, not just present in the person of Jesus and in his people. Because that's the promise that Jesus is making here. And that's what he is describing when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what I want to do in our remaining time is just take some time to, uh, to apply this concept of being poor in spirit. What does it actually mean to live this out? And the first one, this first point is, I realize it might be painfully obvious, but it, it must be said. First and foremost, recognizing our spiritual poverty is necessary for being included in the kingdom. And like you might be saying like, okay, duh. Like, that's kind of what you've already been saying. But here, I, I really want to make this clear. We need to point this out. This is, where, this is where what Jesus is talking about with spiritual poverty differs from, like, actual economics and poverty in this world. Because the reality is when it comes to, to economics, there are those who have and those who don't. Like, when we're just talking about money, there are those who are rich and those who are poor. And we're talking about economics, there's those who are, like, upper class and, like, middle class and lower class. But in actuality, there's not anyone who is actually in and of themselves, of their own natural ability. There are no people who are actually rich in spirit. There's no people who are like middle class in spirit. And Jesus is just speaking to a select group of people who happen to be poor in spirit. No, the reality is, is that everybody is poor in spirit. What Jesus is doing is that he is specifically speaking to those people who know it, who are aware of it, who understand it. They're even willing to embrace it because those are the ones to whom the kingdom belongs. Friends, this is why like... What Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, especially here right out of the gate, this is completely consistent with the gospel, the good news about Jesus. The good news that says that none of us can earn God's love or favor by our own merits. All we can do is acknowledge our lack thereof before him. And therein lies all the grace and goodness of God. Because to those who will acknowledge, who will recognize their spiritual poverty before God, God is glad and eager to pour out all the riches of his grace upon them. 
I mean, this is just part of the basic definition of what it means to become a Christian. I mean, Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great Welch preacher, said of this beatitude, he said, there is no perfect statement of the doctrine of justification by faith only than even this beatitude right here. Friends, what Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, is preparatory work. He's tilling up the soil of our hearts in preparing us so that when we get to the end of the gospel of Matthew and we see that Jesus didn't just come to describe and teach the kingdom, he came to do those things, but he also came to purchase us and to lay down his own life as a sacrificial offering for the forgiveness of our sins so that he could purchase our forgiveness and bring us into that very same kingdom. And the only ones who are ever going to be able to do that are those who in their spiritual poverty recognize their need before God for his grace. And I say that not just because it's kind of the most basic and important point point here, but I say that because it's also why it's so hard for so many to enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, the first step is actually recognizing your spiritual poverty, and the first step is so often the hardest. Look, let's just be honest. Recognizing and embracing your spiritual poverty, I mean, that is a that is an absolutely frightening thing. I mean, it's a frightening thing because we're just, we are wired as human beings, we are wired to want to find something about like the most important aspects of ourselves, the most important aspects of our own value and dignity and worth. We want to be able to look inside and find that in ourselves. I mean, to use the opening illustration, no one likes getting picked last for the team. So it's hard. Of course it's hard. Of course it's going to be hard for so many people to look at the totality of their lives and be willing to just let go and open up their hands and admit and say, yeah, you know what? When it comes to my standing before God, I actually have nothing to offer to merit myself to him that he should want or need to take me. But here's the thing, I think this also requires a little bit of clarification. I think sometimes we could mistake, mistakenly think that, that spiritual poverty, not having anything in ourselves that brings us merit or value before God that he should then be, be beholden to us to bring us into his kingdom, I think sometimes we mistakenly means that we as people have absolute no value in any possible single way. That's not what this is saying at all. In fact, I think we need to be reminded that in actuality, everybody, every single human being, whether you are a Christian or not, the, the Christian worldview is that every single human being is made in the image of God. And therefore, just by virtue of you being a person, a creature, a human being, you are given and made with and imbued with incredible value and dignity and worth. And there's a lot that every single human being has to offer in this world in different ways, 
That's not the same as saying that we have something intrinsically in ourselves to offer God, that God should look at us and say, well, yeah, I just, man, I've measured you, and I just absolutely have to, I must take you into my kingdom. Now, the baseline for all of us is to say, along with the great words of that hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And that's not just like, okay, we need to start there. That's the baseline for what it means to even become a Christian, or that's true of people who aren't yet Christians. That's actually true of us who are Christians and who have been Christians for a long time. My friends, recognizing our spiritual poverty is actually essential even for our ongoing growth in the Christian life. In other words, for you and I to continue to grow as Christians, to make progress in the Christian life, to grow in our sanctification, if you want to say it that way, to grow in our holiness, if you want to say it that way, to grow in our Christ-likeness, we have to continue to recognize our ongoing spiritual poverty. This is true of us individually. It's also true of us as a community too. You know, I think it might be easy for some of us to say, oh, yeah, you know, okay, I'm, I'm tracking with all this. I understand before I was a Christian, I was, then I was, I was poor in spirit. But now, now that I'm a Christian, I mean, I must be like, like rich in spirit. Listen, there is an aspect of truth to that. There really is. I mean, one of the beautiful things about Christianity is not just that Jesus saves us from our sins. It's not just that he is both good enough and powerful enough to do that. But he is also good enough and powerful enough to transform us. He's good enough and powerful enough to produce an actual new life in us. That's part of what it means to belong to the kingdom, to come under the rule and reign of God. When we do that, the, the characteristics and the, the traits of the kingdom of God begin to show themselves in our lives. But here's the thing, even when they do, even when they do at the end of the day, they're still ultimately not from you. They're still ultimately from outside of you, something that God puts into you so that he produces in you. So in some sense, yes, your life will look different. But at the same time, it never ceases to be the case that in your own ability, in your own flesh, in your own nature, in your own power, you will always absolutely have a level of spiritual poverty before God. Which is why I think sometimes we need to be really careful that we don't just simply measure our progress in the Christian life by sinning less. In fact, in some ways, our growth in the Christian life can actually be measured by an increased awareness of just how poor in spirit we really are. I think sometimes there are many of you, I think, who actually know this. Uh, I think there are many of you who actually live this and experience this. I think sometimes what happens is when, when someone becomes a Christian, when they're perhaps a new Christian, there's all these kind of like, like low-hanging fruit, obvious, like external behavior changes. I mean, I've 
I've spoken to many people who, upon becoming Christians, they say things like, oh, yeah, you know, before I was a Christian, uh, like I used, to, I used to swear a lot and use a, bad, a lot of bad language, and I, you know, I drank and I, and I smoked and I became a Christian, and now I don't swear and now I don't drink and smoke. And there's an element that's like, great, right? Like those are like some good behaviors to correct. I mean, even many people who aren't Christians are like, I would love to cut up those behaviors, and they just, for whatever reason, many that, that don't. And it's often the case that, People will become Christians and all of a sudden those things will like just go away and they're like, wow, like look at my life. Look, I want to be really clear. It would be wrong to reduce the Christian life to just those things. Like I said, sometimes those are just like the obvious kind of like low-hanging fruit, external behaviors and habits. But like making progress and growing in the Christian life, a lot of times what that means is that like, the lights get brighter in your own life so that you begin to see just how dark and sinful you were. And you think, yeah, like, you know, maybe I don't use the same language that I used to, but then all of a sudden you realize that, that the pride that exists in your heart is far, far worse than any of the words that ever came out of your mouth. Or maybe it is even still about words, but, but maybe all of a sudden you realize as you make progress in the kingdom, so to speak, you realize that, that the gossip that you engage in is far more destructive to the body of Christ than some of the more obvious things that maybe you no longer do in your life. That's why it's often been said that the Christian life, growing in the Christian life is like, it's like the lights coming on inside getting, getting brighter. It's like seeing the imperfections more clearly on the wall. I mean, when the, when the lights are dim in the room, you can't see all the little imperfections and mistakes that the, that the drywall guy made when he was mudding and taping and sanding all the different joints in the, in the drywall. But all of a sudden, when the lights get brighter and brighter and brighter, you become more and more aware of the imperfections. So friends, there is a sense in which we never outgrow our need to recognize our poverty of spirit. Listen, not only do we need to be able to recognize, but we need to be able to be honest and transparent with each other about the same thing. And the reality is, is there is no actual growth and progress in the Christian life apart from making progress and growing together. Listen, the fact that Jesus says, like, this is just the baseline. This is like the baseline blessed life picture of the good life is for you to recognize your spiritual poverty. If Jesus can say that, saying that's the ticket, that's what I'm looking for, then how much more so ought we to be able to be honest with each other about our own ongoing poverty of spirit? Look, I'm not talking about always airing out your dirty laundry in every single setting. In fact, very recently I was helped by someone who used the language of the difference between between privacy and secrecy, right? It's good for all of us to have relationships where we can share in the privacy of those safe, safe relationships right here in the life of our church the ways in which we are aware and continue to experience our poverty of spirit. That's different than secrecy. Secrecy is 
nobody ever gets to know what you know about the poverty of your own spirit. Friends, the reality is, is that you will never make progress in the kingdom. The, these beautiful pictures of the blessed life of life in the kingdom that Jesus puts forward in the Beatitudes that kingdom life will never grow in you if your poverty of spirit is only ever in secrecy. And here's the thing. Even as we recognize that in ourselves and even as we're willing to talk about those things more with one another, recognizing our spiritual poverty should make us simultaneously, at the same time, it should make us more humble and more confident. And I know you're like, wait, those things are like two completely different things. Those are opposed. How can they be at the same time? What I'm saying is that's absolutely the case. Recognizing our spiritual poverty should make us both simultaneously at the same time more humble and more confident. You know, one of the things that we just can't help but doing as human beings, we always just compare ourselves to other people, don't we? Again, we just can't help it. It's just like it's a natural part of our behavior. It's probably a natural part of that poor in spirit nature behavior. But we always do that. We're always comparing ourselves with other people. And in doing so, we're always looking to find people that we are better than so that we can feel a little bit better about ourselves. And look, some friends, what Jesus is saying here about life in the kingdom. He's saying there is absolutely no place for that. I mean, the reality is that you can't actually look around and even recognize somebody's spiritual condition just by sort of like easily like looking around at like what they look like, look like in life. But even if you could, like even if you could look around and you had x-ray vision to see everyone's spiritual condition, what Jesus is saying is that the baseline is the same for every single person. It all starts the same place with absolute poverty of spirit. So there's absolutely no sense in which any of us can look at somebody, somebody else and then look at ourselves and go, ha, I'm so glad I'm better than them. Like Jesus told a story about that. A story in Luke's gospel. He told this parable of two men who went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, he said, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. My friends, recognizing our spiritual poverty should actually make us more humble knowing that when it comes to our standing before God and our standing in his kingdom, 
none of us inherently have any more to offer than the other. But here's the thing, it should also make us more confident. You're like, wait a minute, how does that actually fit with the same idea? Because here's the thing, sometimes we seek to compare ourselves to people who we think aren't as good or as spiritual as us, but other times we compare ourselves to people who we think are so much spiritually better than us or, or ahead of us. We shouldn't do that either. You know, there's this phrase that I've come across before. I don't know if you've ever heard people talk like this before. And, and like I've probably said something like this before, and so if you have, I'm not trying to like condemn you for this, but maybe there's some slight correction. But like sometimes we talk about people, we call them, we label them like spiritual giants. Like, oh yeah, so-and-so, they had this incredible impact, this incredible ministry, we call them spiritual giants. And that's not to minimize the fact that some people do have incredible, significant unique and and sometimes unique in a whole generation kinds of impacts. But we should probably be careful in labeling them spiritual giants. Especially when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. If the starting point is spiritual poverty, that means nobody's better than anybody. And it also means that everybody has something to offer. I mean, the reality is, is that God does give different gifts to different people. But the reality is, is that for, if we're all starting from the place of being poor in spirit, then there's no one that you or I should ever look at and think, oh, I could never be like them. Or we should never look at anybody and say, God would never look at me like he must look at them. Because the reality is, If you have Christ, even, not even, the only way to have Christ is to recognize that you're spiritually poor. So if you have Christ in your spiritual poverty, he looks at all of us the same and says, I love you, you are accepted in Christ. It also means that every single one of us has something that we can offer Listen, I need to close this thing down. I want to make two more just very brief points. Recognizing our spiritual poverty should also make us both more sorrowful and more joyful. The reality is is that there is a place, there is a necessary place for both of those things, for both of those feelings and heart attitudes and expressions in every individual life, the life of every individual Christian and in the life of our church. And the reality is, is that you may not know where anybody else is at any given time, but both are appropriate responses to the reality of our spiritual poverty. Listen, I want to be clear. When Jesus says the poor in spirit, he's not just talking about people who have low self-esteem. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying like anyone who just feels bad about themselves. No, he's very specifically talking about this poverty of spirit. But there are times, friends, there are times that I think you know as well as I do. Maybe I should say that I well, I know as well as you do. There are times when you are so faced with your own spiritual poverty with your own imperfection, with your own ongoing temptations and struggle and giving in to sin, sometimes that is just so 
obvious in your life. You feel like it's winning. And because you do, you even walk in here feeling discouraged, battered down, and even defeated. Listen, friends, the reality is, is that is a common experience in the Christian life. And not all of it is inappropriate. I mean, it is an okay and right and proper response to look at our spiritual poverty and be sad because of it. But at the same time, at the same time, it also gives us the opportunity to experience even more joy because it is the very thing that God says he rescues us from and it is the very necessary condition not just condition, but our recognition of that is the necessary condition that we need to be made right with God. And so there are times, there are times, and again, we just know this, there's times when you are more aware than other times of God's grace and his mercy and his love. And that causes us to come in here just feeling more, more joyful and more happy. And so because of that, it is appropriate to find expressions of both those things. I mean, that's why sometimes we sing, sing songs that are fast and upbeat. And that's sometimes why we sing songs that are slow and have more of a minor key. That's why we have prayers of confession in our corporate worship. We're not trying to manipulate people, make people feel bad about themselves. But it is an opportunity to be reminded week in and week out of the blessedness of our being poor in spirit. Listen, that poor, that poverty of spirit should be recognizable to other people. Recognizing our spiritual poverty should be recognizable to others. I mean, this is especially true of us as a church. What kind of statement do we want to make? What kind of statement do we think that we're making about ourselves as a church in the way that we present ourselves to the world? And some of this might not even be something that is so obvious and external. Some of this might just be even in the recesses of our hearts. What kind of churches do we want to do? We want to feel like we are. I mean, so often we are drawn to want to be marked by the successes of the world. Prominent budgets and prominent numbers and prominent programs. We want to project an image that everything is awesome and great and grand. And while on the one hand we should seek to do everything as well as we can. Do we present a picture of ourselves corporately to the watching world of a group of people who recognize our spiritual poverty? What about at home? Parents, as we shepherd our kids and teach our kids, do we teach them that poverty of spirit is something that is true of them because they're they're kids, you know, kids always have a tendency just to kind of mess things up. But, you know, us parents, us, us grown-ups, the truth is we mess things up sometimes just as much as they do. And often when we mess things up, we break things even worse than they can. We're being honest and transparent even in our own homes about our own poverty of spirit or even in your workplace, in your neighborhoods as you have conversations with people, with Christians, with non-Christians, excuse me. Even if you talk about things, about 
Like the grace of God and the importance of trusting in Jesus for your salvation, friends. So often what our non-Christian friends and neighbors will hear for us is that we're just inviting them into trying harder to live a better life. Do the people who are in your life, who are around you, actually see a picture from you that you believe and recognize that you truly are poor spirit. Church, let's lean into kingdom life together. The good life, the blessed life of being poor in spirit. Let's pray. God, my prayer this morning